I've been uh, talking about China for 40 years. People are finally starting to listen. They had to get sick, many of them, before they started to listen, but they're listening now. And why we aren't calling China to account these days, I don't know. They owe us. You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. If we keep our military strong, if we deny China access to capital and technology, if we deny China access to our market, the Chinese economy will die. Welcome to the Code Red Podcast. I am Alan Roth. Our special guest today is China expert and president of the Population Research Institute, Stephen W. Mojo. Stephen has written the best one-volume history analysis of communist China. The book is Bully of Asia, Why China's Dream is the New Threat to World Order. Stephen, you argue in Bully of Asia that America and the West have largely not stepped up to the challenge communist China poses to us. Can you explain the nature of China's challenge and why it is essential for us to meet this challenge? Well, in China today, you have a country with a vast population and vast resources controlled by the 92 million members of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, arguably uh, the largest political organization that has ever existed. It is a criminal conspiracy. In fact, you would call it uh, in one sense, it's an international crime family. It's a mafia. It's a group of people who are lawless bound together only by the interest in dominating and exploiting the people of China and the people of the world. And we must always remember when we talk about the Chinese Communist Party and China, that the Chinese people themselves are the first and foremost victims of the Chinese Communist Party. The party has killed probably on the order of 100 million Chinese since it launched its campaign for power back in the 30s with the, uh, with the Chinese Civil War. And coming on through the purges of the 1950s, the Great Leap Forward, the death, massive death, 42 million people died in the famine of the early 1960s, the millions of deaths in the Cultural Revolution. And of course, the biggest death toll of all comes in the one-child policy, which ran from when I was first in China back in 1980, until it was ended in 2016, 400 million victims, tiny victims of the party's drive to reduce the birth rate in China uh, died at the hands of uh, Red Army doctors uh, during that massive campaign. So the total number of victims of the Chinese Communist Party inside of China itself is roughly five hundred million people. That's a half a billion people have died at the hands of this political organization. So among other things, the party is the biggest killing machine in human history. It has utter disregard for human life. And of course, it would like to extend its writ 
as I've been saying for the last three decades, it would like to extend its writ far beyond China's borders uh, to include literally not just the rest of Asia, but the rest of the world as well. And, and I'll tell you what, Alan, a world under Chinese domination uh, is not a world that I or, or I want my children or grandchildren to, to live in. Last week, there were a series of emails between Dr. Fauci, Dr. Collins, over the origins of the COVID-19 virus. Do you think that COVID-19 was or is a bioweapon? Helen, I have a book coming out from Regnery Press in a couple of months uh, called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics. And in it, I talk in great detail about the fact that the United States, because uh, and through Dr. Anthony Fauci's shop at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, funded gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was specifically intended to take bat coronaviruses and make them more infectious and more deadly. The money was sent to China through Richard Ebright's EcoHealth Alliance, and he reported back on the progress of this gain-of-function research, which could not be carried out in the United States because we'd be, we'd call the halt to it because it was too dangerous. The possibility of a lab escape and a subsequent pandemic too great. And so we ended the research in this country and yet the inimitable Dr. Fauci found a way to continue uh, his research in the People's Republic of China. Now, he was doing it for purposes of scientific advance. He wanted to create superbugs in the lab and then develop vaccines to defeat them. And his idea was, well, if we create a superbug in the lab and then vaccines to defeat it, the next time we have uh, a virus of natural origin, uh, we'll be better positioned to develop quickly a vaccine against that too. But that's not the way the People's Liberation Army bioweapons experts saw the matter. They saw gain-of-function research as a wonderful way to develop bioweapons. And they talked about it in secret talks, one dating back to 2017, when the head of the People's Liberation Army bioweapons program, a major general by the name of Chun, Major General Chun Wei, gave a talk. And she said that we're developing viruses uh, and then we're developing vaccines and she against the viruses. And she explained that first you need a spear before you can develop a shield. And the spear was the deadly virus using gain-of-function technology that China had learned in the United States. And once you develop the deadly virus, you then go on to develop the shield which is to say the vaccine. So that before you release the bioweapon on your enemy, you give your own people a shield. You vaccinate them against the deadly virus. You vaccinate the members of the military. You vaccinate Communist Party members. You vaccinate perhaps the population at large 
and then you can release the bioweapon on the world. That was the plan. What happened, I believe, Alan, was that the virus, the deadly China virus that we that causes COVID-19 was released accidentally during vaccine trials in the city of Wuhan. And it spread from there throughout the country of China and the Communist Party seeing that it had the spear before it had the shield quickly spread it around the world and caused the pandemic that we've all been living through for the past two years. So yes, it was a bioweapon. Yes, it did come from the Wuhan Institute of Virology and from other bioweapons laboratories that were being run by the People's Liberation Army bioweapons program. Yes, it did come from China. It escaped during vaccine trials and was then deliberately spread around the world by China. And why we aren't calling China to account these days, I don't know. They owe us trillions and trillions of dollars in reparations. Everyone who's had someone die from the virus, everyone who's fallen ill from the virus, every business that's been shuttered, every uh, person who's lost a job because of the virus is owed reparations by the Chinese Communist Party, which inflicted this deadly virus on the world. And yet, from the current administration, from the Biden administration, we hear nothing except statements like, we may never know where the virus came from. We may never know whether it came from a lab or directly from nature, from a bat. Well, I think we know quite well, but they just aren't willing to say. In Bully of Asia, you urge the United States and the West to push back against Chinese aggression. We're not talking about militarily now, but there are various ways that we should push back. Can you briefly outline how you think America should um, respond to China's aggression? I think it would be easy for the United States, in conjunction with its allies, to bring China to its knees. And in part, we would do the same thing that we so successfully did to bring down the Soviet Union. You know, the policy of President Reagan, uh, for whom I wrote several speeches after he left office, the policy of President Reagan, which resulted in the collapse of the Soviet Union, was to deny the Soviet Union technology, Western technology, because most of their technology was stolen uh, from the West, and deny them capital, deny them loans, deny them access to easy money. And of course, at the same time, we built up a first-rate military that the Soviet Union could not compete with. We have to do the same thing today. We have to stay strong militarily with the idea that that's the only road through peace because if we become weak militarily, I have no doubt that, that China will attack. But we have to deny them capital. They have had a feeding tube going directly from Wall Street into the capital markets of China uh, for the last few decades. 
we have to cut off that flow of funding. We have to delist Chinese companies from Wall Street, from the U.S. stock exchanges where they literally raise you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Secondly, we have to cut off their access to technology. Now, this is going to be difficult because the cyber attacks are incessant. There is constant cyber espionage going on in the United States. There are thousands of front organizations set up by the People's Liberation Army, by the Communist Party, by the Chinese government, which is busy siphoning off uh, modern advanced technology. We have to stop those cyber attacks. We have to stop the flow of technology to China. We have to make sure that in our universities, we do not have uh, American scientists who are working secretly uh, for the Chinese Communist Party under the Thousand Talents Program. There's a lot more of that going on than people know. Uh, we know the head of the chemistry department, uh, Charles Lieber, uh, was working for nearly 10 years secretly for China, uh, taking his brain chip implant technology and handing it over to China uh, in a secret lab in the city of Wuhan, China, of all places. He's been called to account, but there are literally hundreds, maybe thousands of others uh, of people who have wormed their way into science and technology departments in U.S. universities who are busily doing the same thing. We have to stop uh, Chinese uh, graduate students, some of whom are actually officers in the People's Liberation Army, from coming over to the United States and getting graduate degrees in advanced science and technology fields. Because the reason they're here is not to help the United States. The reason they're here is to get their hands on as much technology as possible, take it back to China. So we have to stop the flow of technology to China. The Communist Party is a lawless regime, and it will not uh, abide by the laws of the United States now or ever. But it also is lawless within its own borders, and that means that it does not protect intellectual property in China. There is constant theft going on. And that's why without patent law, without protection of intellectual property, China cannot develop indigenously the kinds of technology it needs. It can only get it from the United States and the West. And if we stop that flow of technology, they will fall behind. The other thing we have to do, Alan, is we have to relink our supply chains. We have to take our supplies of pharmaceuticals and car parts and everything else that's made in China, and we have to change those sources to countries that respect our values, that share our democratic values and our democratic institutions. Uh, let's make our pharmaceuticals here in the United States. That's a national security issue. Let's make our car parts here in the United States or in Canada or Mexico. Uh, let's source uh, clothing and other items in places like the Philippines or Taiwan or, or uh, India, uh, countries that share our, our values. Let's do what Japan is doing. Japan has set up a multi-billion dollar fund to help Japanese companies leave China. If a Japanese company with a factory in China 
wants to leave China, the Japanese government will subsidize its move. And it doesn't have to move back to Japan. Some of them do, but others uh, move to the Philippines or they move to uh, the United States or they move to India. Anywhere but China. Japan sees the danger of being over-reliant on China in any aspect of the economy. And we should too. We should delink our economy from China. If we keep our military strong, if we deny China access to capital and technology, if we deny China access to our market through continued tariffs, and then we seek other sources for the goods, the manufactured goods that we bring into the United States, that we import into the United States, the Chinese economy will die because it is dependent upon exports. And without exports, it will collapse. Um, that's what our policy should be. And uh, hopefully one day we will have an administration in Washington that is once again uh, aggressively pursuing that policy. We had one from, six, from 2016 until 2020. We do not have one now. We have a policy, we have policymakers in China, on the China front in Washington, D.C., who've been compromised by China and who are not willing to get tough on China in the ways that I've been talking about. Well, you have uh, presented an extremely clear and doable uh, policy for the United States to follow. And as you said, President Reagan, up until President Reagan uh, came into office, uh, the, the pushback against uh, the Soviet Union was pretty much limited to containment. And when he started to push, the walls came crumbling down. And uh, we need to do the same thing as far as China is concerned. You know, uh, Stephen, uh, I'm fairly well read and, uh, and Secure America Now has been active, for example, in exposing Confucius Institutes on American campuses and Chinese propaganda being infiltrating our universities. But in your book, Bully of Asia, one of the points that was something I had not, I, was, I wasn't aware of, is that China's belligerent attitude towards the world and China's need or desire to expand its influence around the world actually dates back well before this gangster regime, this gangster communist regime. Can you spend a few minutes and explain the attitude that the Chinese have and have had towards the rest of the world? Well, China historically was the great uh, civilization of East Asia. To the north of China, you had uh, Manchuria and then the frozen tundra of Siberia. Uh, to the east, you had the Pacific Ocean, of course, the island uh, countries of uh, the peninsula of Korea and the island country of Japan. To the south, you had the smaller countries, Vietnam and Cambodia, and then the Himalayas, uh, Tibet. And to the west, you had the uh, Turkish provinces, uh, Kazakhstan, 
Uh, the, the Uyghur land, what uh, the Uyghurs call Eastern Turkestan, what the Chinese call Xinjiang. So China was surrounded by smaller, weaker nations. And every time China grew large and powerful, it would begin to encroach upon these nations and expand its territory. Uh, even today, you know, we think of China proper as the eastern one third of the country. More than half the country is conquered territory. Tibet was an independent country for literally millennia with its own long history and culture, as people know. Uh, it has now been languishing under uh, the rule of the Chinese Communist Party since 1959. Uh, the far west of China was never controlled by the Chinese emperor, but it is now controlled by uh, the People's Republic of China. Uh, Manchuria was the homeland of the, the Manchu people who dominated China during the Qing dynasty from 1640 to 1911, but now, of course, is dominated by China. And much of Mongolia is uh, now... Uh, see, has been seized by China as Chinese territory. So uh, China historically has been a, a very aggressive country expanding its borders. Uh, it is an empire that has survived into the modern age. And, and that means that, uh, that empires have no natural borders. Their borders are set by the balance of forces. And where empires encounter weakness, they expand. And we see that happening now. China has territorial claims in all points of the compass. They have a claim to the Senkaku Islands uh, that are owned by Japan and to the uh, Okinawa Island chain. Uh, and it points to the fact that the daimyo, the head of Okinawa back in 17th uh, century, paid tribute to the Chinese court. And so the Chinese Communist Party said, look, they brought tribute to the mighty Chinese court. And so even today, we should own Okinawa and that island chain. Traditionally, of course, Korea has been under Chinese dominance and control. And to a large extent, North Korea still is today. Uh, historically, Vietnam was part of China uh, during the maximum extension expansion of the Chinese empire. And they would like to retake Vietnam today. That's why they fought a war. Uh, against Vietnam. China invaded Vietnam in 1979, as some people will remember. Uh, they got their heads handed to them because the Vietnamese turned out to be much more hardened and fierce fighters uh, than the People's Liberation Army in 1979, and China had to retreat. But they made the effort. And they recently, in fact, as recently as last year, fought a serious border conflict with India over parts of the Himalayan plateau that, that China claims and yet has been Indian territory for centuries. And there's even a claim now to about half of uh, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, China believes that it owns half of the country, the eastern half of the country. And we'll see if they move uh, forward to retake that. The real flashpoint, the final point I would mention is Taiwan. Taiwan has been an independent country, either as, a, as, a, as part of Japan or as an independent country since 1895. Uh, it has never been under the control of the People's Republic of China, and yet you constantly hear the drums of war beating in Beijing, where they say we must reconquer the lost province of Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan was never a lost province of the People's Republic of China. It has been independent uh, the entire time. And yet uh, China makes noises about invading 
uh, Taiwan, uh, which is a free country, by the way, of some 24 million people who have had uh, a peaceful uh, transition of power for the last 30 years, fair and free elections, um, respect for human rights, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, all of the freedoms we associate with a modern democracy, the people of Taiwan enjoy. It's a beacon of freedom, in fact, for the Chinese people on the mainland, which I believe is one of the principal reasons why the Communist Party is so determined to extinguish freedom in, in Taiwan, because it, it might give the people of mainland China the idea that someday they might be free as well, and the Communist Party cannot allow that particular virus to spread. You recount America's uh, engagement, specifically Nixon and Kissinger, opening the door to China, the communist China. And the results of that opening has been to encourage or to um, have American businesses, sports teams, others to treat China as if it is just an extension of a civilized society, Western civilized society, while China does some horrendous things to the Uyghurs, to Catholics, to Protestants, to Christians, to dissidents, we saw what happened recently in Hong Kong. Um, can you explain why, um, led by the United States of America, Americans seem to uh, not look at China as the enemy that it is? We had a long period, of course, of enmity with the between the Communist Party, Communist China, and the United States in the 50s and 60s, we had the, the uh, we fought a war uh, against China on the Korean Peninsula. After North Korea, uh, under the original Kim, uh, sent his forces south of the demilitarized zone and nearly took the whole country. The U.S. and 17 other countries intervened and drove the North Korean forces back, at which point 250,000 uh, members of the Red Army poured over the Yellow River into the Korean Peninsula, and uh, the war was fought to a standstill, and an armistice was declared a few years later. Uh, that There has never been a peace treaty signed uh, between North and South Korea, between China and the United States. So technically, on the Korean Peninsula, uh, we are still at war with China. Uh, so that was the state of play until Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon convinced themselves that they could divide uh, Red China from the Soviet Union and, and enlist it in an effort to contain the Soviet Union. Well, by the time Nixon visited China, the, the, the uh, Sino-Soviet split had already occurred. The Chinese and the Russians were fighting battalion-sized battles along the the Amur River in northern Manchuria. So they were already at loggerheads and they were ready to uh, have a visit from the United States. We thought, and, and I thought, quite frankly, Alan, uh, during the 1980s, I had, was in China as the first American social scientist allowed to do research in China. I arrived in China in March of 1979. I can read, write, and speak Chinese. I, I was there for over a year. 
And, and I thought at the time, as I saw the people's communes dissolved, as I saw the Chinese people allowed to start businesses for the first time, I was for some years hopeful, as many of us were hopeful, that China would go our way, that the opening to the West would result in a free market growing up in China, and that that free market in turn would allow economic growth, the growth of a middle class, and, and ultimately a middle class that was more educated and would demand respect for human rights and more openness. That seemed to be happening in the 1980s. And then we came to the Tiananmen demonstrations uh, in the spring of 1989, when millions and millions of people in all of China's major cities, including in the capital city of Beijing, took to the streets. And they were demanding an end to bureaucratization, what they called bureaucratization, which by which they meant one party dictatorship. They were calling for freedom of speech and freedom of the press. They were actually holding signs with quotations from Thomas Jefferson and, 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 uh, and uh, Abraham Lincoln. And what happened? Well, what happened was the Chinese Communist Party, instead of uh, allowing that openness to continue, brought in the Red Army and used tanks, the treads of tanks, to crush unarmed students uh, into hamburger on the streets of the capital city of Beijing. They had soldiers unleash automatic weapons on crowds of unarmed students, killing 10,000 in the capital city of Beijing alone and many thousands in other cities. And then the following day, they sent convoys of army trucks to all the hospitals and clinics in Beijing to collect the wounded and take them to an undisclosed location. And probably 20,000, 30,000 more people were killed. Why? Because they wanted to kill all the witnesses to their brutal Tiananmen massacre. That was the end of the dream that China would not just modernize and become a modern industrialized state, but would at the same time come to respect human rights and perhaps even begin to travel down the road to democracy. It ended on Tiananmen Square in a bloody massacre on June 4th of 1989. And from that time forward, the Chinese Communist Party has been absolutely determined to use every means at its control to not only control and dominate the Chinese population, but to control and dominate the rest of the world. In fact, it wasn't very long after that. In 1991, witnessing the collapse of the Soviet Union, that Deng Xiaoping, who was the senior leader of China at the time, Vice Premier Deng, Deng Xiaoping, called together his fellow senior leaders and told them, the old Cold War is over. The Soviet Union has collapsed. The United States has won the first Cold War. The second Cold War is now beginning between China and the United States, and we will win this one. America will be defeated. So for over the last three decades, Alan, China has been at war with us across every domain except the kinetic. We're not firing bullets with each other. But then they don't have to. They've been so good at infiltration, at corruption, at uh, stealing, uh, at cyber attacks, that they don't need to go kinetic. They've already made huge inroads into the, the American Republic and have weakened us tremendously. You have, uh, you 
reference in your book, Bully of Asia, the extent of the Chinese communists um, trying to uh, pass their propaganda into American society and Western society. And one of the things which I mentioned earlier that they had um, established was something called the Confucius Institute. Can you talk about their infiltration on American campuses, not just the institutes, which after we helped expose it, we weren't the only ones trying to expose this. Um, they have also uh, contributed handsomely to various universities. What type of an impact does that have on what's being taught in our universities? Well, let me, let me say first, that uh, Chairman Mao, Chairman Mao Zedong, one of the one of the great mass murderers of human history, declared back in the 1940s that the Chinese Communist Party had three magic weapons, and the three magic weapons that he talked about were, first of all, propaganda; uh, secondly, united front tactics; and thirdly, the Red Army. Now, propaganda, we all know what propaganda is, and China is very good at it. That's how you weaken your enemy, by demoralizing them, by propagandizing them, by capturing their hearts and minds. United Front Tactics are where you go into an enemy organization or a neutral organization, and you seize control of it by pretending to join the organization or by setting up within the organization a secret cell or a conspiracy of people who undermine the original principles of the organization and take it over from within, uh, the enemy within, as it were. And that's what the Confucius Institutes are. They are cells of, of Chinese Communist Party members, which have been inserted using bribes, millions of dollars of payments to American universities, to set up these so-called Confucius Institutes to supposedly teach Chinese language and history and culture when they're actually existing on campus to teach the history and the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. And so they burrowed into the American campus, the American university system, and they're corrupting it from within. Of course, there have been huge payments to American universities as well, uh, payments on the order of tens of millions of dollars. Harvard University alone has received over $100 million. But let me bring the issue home with a personal example. As I mentioned, I was the first American social scientist in China, allowed in China in 1979. I was there until the summer of 1980. And when I came back and began to speak out against human rights abuses, forced abortions, forced sterilizations, summary executions, all of the panoply of human rights abuses that we know occur in China every day, the Chinese government was incensed and it declared that I had not been doing academic research at all in China, but rather I had been spying. 
They declared that I was an international spy and they demanded of Stanford University that I be seriously punished for writing articles attacking China. Well, I never wrote articles attacking China. I wrote articles attacking the Chinese Communist Party. The University of Stanford, which was desperate to maintain its ties to the People's Republic of China, investigated my research for four years, and at the end of the day, fired me, refused to give me the PhD, and sent me packing. So I was a victim of the kinds of pressure uh, and influence, and probably the first victim of the kinds of pressure and influence that the Chinese Communist Party now wields on American university campuses. And how did they get Stanford University to break? Well, they told Stanford that no Stanford professor or academic would ever be welcome in China again, unless I were severely punished. And that in fact, the entire US-China scholarly exchange program would be jeopardized and perhaps canceled unless I were punished. So there were even people calling from Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter's National Security Council to Stanford saying, you'd better do something to get this Stephen Mosier to stop talking because it's jeopardizing our relations with China. Now think about, think about that on a grand scale. Think about that on a national scale. Uh, think about what's happening today, 40 years later on campuses like Stanford and Harvard and Yale, where they've accepted tens of millions of dollars from China, where they have uh, youth student organizations of, of uh, young Communist Party members from China who complain every time any professor uh, says a negative word about China or the Communist Party. Now think about the kinds of, of influence that China wields today on American university campuses where you can't talk about the, the, the tragedy of Tibet or freedom in Taiwan, or the Tiananmen massacre, as we just did, without having complaints uh, from the Chinese uh, student union, without having complaints from the head of the Confucius Institute, who is picked by uh, the Communist Party, by the way, and put in place on American campuses. So you see how the discussion of China policy in the United States has been distorted, and not just distorted, but massaged and controlled by China in a way that benefits China. Uh, to a large extent, I think the China policy of the current administration is not being made in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's being made, uh, at least in broad outline, in Beijing uh, by the Communist Party. I want to uh, wrap this up by once again urging people to purchase and read Bully of Asia. I also want to extend an invitation to you, Stephen, to come back on this podcast when your new book comes out. It sounds absolutely essential and fascinating. And I want to thank you for taking the time and sharing your in-depth knowledge of the communist Chinese and how America needs or should act on behalf of, of the free world.